Why Do We Sound So Good? Because we're at Dead Aunt Thelma's studio and Mike Moore is engineering for us. Thanks, Dead Aunt Thelma's. Thanks, Mike. Hey, everybody. I am Susanna Mars, and today I am with Jennifer Grit. Welcome, Jennifer, to Adventures in Artslandia. Thank you so much for having me. It's my absolute pleasure. We were sitting prior to recording, and we just started kind of talking about the history of the time that we're going to talk about, which is the beginning of World War One, and Henry and Georgiana Piddock moving into their mansion. And we just start, kept talking. I thought, we better come sit by the microphones or we're never <laughs> going to record all this. It's so interesting. Right, yes. It's one of those two where once I start, it's kind of hard to like um, shut it off because it is such a fascinating time period. It really is about in our national history, in the history of the city of Portland. It's very, very interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, so according to my notes, the Piddocks moved into the mansion a month after World War I began. Correct, yeah. What was life like for them during the war years? You know, um, it's one of those things where because they moved into the mansion later in life, you know, Henry was 80 years old, Georgiana was uh, 69 years old, wow. their kids were grown, they all had established families, and it's one of those things where people sometimes um, are surprised by that when they tour the mansion of that they weren't in this mansion for uh, the majority of their lifetime. Mm -hmm. They lived in a house which um, actually occupied the block of the block of what is the Piddock Building mm -hmm. downtown that still exists today. Mm -hmm. So when they moved in, it was uh, kind of a you know, a very ambitious project for, for Henry, who wanted to build a mansion that had all of the modern uh, amenities of that were available to him in this age of industrialization and technology boom. Hmm. So electricity, you know, the area is getting electrified, telephones are coming into play, you know, road systems, this is the age of the automobile. Hmm. All of these things were happening and he was so fascinated with the latest technology and those things also were very prominent in his business interactions with the printing press systems for his Oregonian newspaper and really invested in the latest and greatest in technology that was available to him. Hmm. So they did not live in the mansion for very long. They pretty much existed in the mansion during the duration of World War One, mm -hmm. 1914 to 1918, which are, are kind of our focus years for for the story. And then we, we do expand it. Uh, we talk about the history of Portland during that time period in the early 20th century, as well as also, you know, you know, recognize that they were also pioneers. They came over on the Oregon Trail separately. Mm -hmm. They met in Portland and, and married in the region. Um, um, and they were also part of that contributing process as well of, of the industrialization of Portland. Right. And Henry was originally from England. Born in England, mm -hmm. um, moved uh, to uh, Pennsylvania when he was younger. Mm -hmm. And he actually came over on the Oregon Trail with his brother. Mm -hmm. And then Georgiana came over at a separate time uh, with her family. Right. It's so interesting. And then they met here in Oregon? Yes. Yeah. And then they married. And, um, you know, the early years where he was about establishing the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for Henry Piddock, I think one of the most fascinating and intriguing things about him is his just head for business and really wanting to transform Portland into this new progressive city. It's so interesting because we were talking about progressive and, and what that meant at that time. Right. Which, while he was very progressive, 
you know, still it was very much a white man's world. Right. And you're talking about that transitional blend from the Gilded Age, which, you know, is usually the Victorian era, but in America it would be more referred to as the Victorian or the Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. And then um, you get the progressive era that comes right after it. Mm -hmm. And so it is this really turbulent time of change. And, you know, a lot of times we're still dealing with some of, you know, these societal things that were kind of getting churned up during that process. You know, if you listen closely to kind of discourse today, you'll still hear remnants of some of the same things that were challenging, you know, society and politics during this time period as well. It's really interesting because it reminds me, I know that the jazz age, it, this mm-hmm. is right prior or when jazz was being developed in other parts of the United States. And it's this almost kind of conflicted way of being in the world, coming from that old world, the the era of uh, the the Gilded Age and and also crossing it up with equality and women's rights and this kind of conflicted time, right? And I think you know when you do start to take a look at some of the pioneer history and that element. You know, Henry and Georgiana were so very active in the community. And when we, of the information that we have on Georgiana, like there was nothing about her that was a sit at home uh, housewife. Uh, There really, really wasn't. Uh, Mm -hmm. She was very active in. In progressive circles, she was part of the Portland Women's Union. Uh, she was at the Martha Washington House, which was a hotel that allowed uh, independent females who, you know, did not go into that safety of marriage and wanted to work independently. They created a, a residence for them so that they could live safely and securely and not feel like they were, you know, isolated from society because of their choice not to follow that marriage route. Mm. You know, so Georgiana and her, you know, um, compatriots, you know, were very much about like wanting to make sure that these women felt comfortable in that choice, gave them a living situation that was, you know, sometimes wouldn't have been, you know, would would have been looked down upon of a Mm -hmm. woman being on her own or trying to work for herself, where Georgiana was among the group of women who were actively like, no, we support that. And we're going to help build a residence for you. So you guys have a place, you know, that's really recognized of we support your choice in doing this. And Henry was really a partner with her in those values. Right. You know, and this is a part too where, you know, people I think kind of have sometimes a misunderstanding of Freemasonry and how that was kind of uh, played kind of an underscore of how people operated during this time period. And the Freemasons were very more, they were out more. I mean, when I sit there and go through kind of the Oregonian listing of some of the events that Henry and Georgia Anna were attached to, it's all lodge and parades and, you know, things that were kind of very much uh, a daily activity or, or a very recognizable activity. And it wasn't this like hidden, secret, weird, you know, thing. It was more part of the the societal um, fabric web and fabric. Yeah. So what are the less uh, light aspects of Freemasonry? I'm not very knowledgeable about that. You know, when you, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, even myself, I'll admit it's a scratching of the surface, but one of the things that in their literature that it's calling to do is really recognizing that it's challenging you to be a better person in the world. Mm. And I think that's the part where I kind of look back on uh, when I sit there and take a look at what Henry and Georgiana really did. Mm -hmm. You know, they were very much a product of their time period, their Mm -hmm. station, their wealth, their status within Portland, Mm -hmm. but they also had that kind of Oregon pioneer spirit of like 
independence and not necessarily the flash and style of what people would kind of, you know, attach to the Gilded Age. And one of the great things about the mansion is we have decorative arts representative during that time period. But when you actually take a look at the original pieces that have come back to us, they are not elaborate. They are not ornate. Mm. They're actually very simple pieces and they weren't you know, you know, lavish. That wasn't really who they were. That wasn't really their type of lifestyle. When I think about somebody who would be making their living from a printing, which is an art form in itself. Yeah. Did he collect various uh, and sundry items from the printing industry? You know, uh, and as far as personal items, you know, we, we are limited. The mm-hmm. The museum itself, itself started as an empty house, mm-hmm. you know, and we, we have had objects come back to us through the family, uh, but it's, some, it's a process that kind of continues to evolve and change as we get more material. Mm. Uh, we recently got a batch of his travel letters donated back, which allows us to kind of get an insight into who he was writing back to Georgiana and um, how he was like just observing, you know, different worlds around him. And, you know, for me, if I'm going to approach it as a historian, you know, you do start to see a reflection of, you know, maybe not so much his belief system, because I think that's really hard to judge in anybody, especially someone who you're trying to figure out who they were, who's Mm -hmm. no longer with us. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you do see in his words, his awareness of, you know, city structures, like he would make comments about how a transportation system in a town in Europe, you know, was functioning and really recognizing like the industries of the areas where he was visiting. Mm. And that was something he was interested in as well. What people I don't think realize is, and we kind of make a, a you know, a statement that he was invested in other areas other than the Oregonian, mm-hmm. of which he was the publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually was the president of Northwestern Bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, he owned um, with his son and son-in-laws. He had a principal shares in a paper mill lumber mm-hmm. company. Mm-hmm. It was all of these things that were very much about the investment in Portland industry. Why do you think he was so drawn? on to building a, a big city. What is it about people and, and men in particular at that time that felt as though more is better? That is, you know, it's, it's, this is something you can continue to study today. Uh, when you have that whole, I think in, in England, it's usually referred to as imperialism. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those where they, it was on this, this, this acknowledgement of technology was equated with progress Mm -hmm. and using technology for the good and betterment. And there was kind of a, you know, a bit of a, I guess maybe utopian vision Mm -hmm. for what technology could bring. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as we study the Gilded Age and you study like post civil war and all of the, the stuff leading up to this, you know, you're coming out of that, you know, just country torn apart era and Mm -hmm. trying to rebuild itself. And suddenly there's this explosion of invention and thinking and machines and, you know, autos and radio and and things are starting to speed up and, and you start to feel this like we we do feel that cities will be, you know, for the betterment of, you know, mankind. And if you concentrate on really building these, you know, high tech industrial cities, it will be for the benefit of everyone in society. It's so interesting because then when you say society, I think, well, then people of color, for instance, weren't necessarily recognized as people of society that 
Is that the case? Would you agree? Right. You know, that's always going to be part of this this study of history of kind of like in thinking in terms of almost a cultural and ideological identity of groups of people mm-hmm. and how these time periods and what happened in those time periods interacted, you know, good or bad, you know, wh- wherever you stand, it's, it's worthwhile studying. Yes. You know, one of the things to, you know, take a look at, um, especially with like the writings of, you know, say like, uh, you know, Scott, who was the editor, you know, people would read him today and, and some people would really want to dismiss him of like, wow, this is just a, you know, imperialistic, conservative person. But when you want to get a glimpse into what was driving that mindset back there, he was very articulate and mm-hmm. really capturing, you know, they really believed in vision and they really believed that technology and industry was going to be for the betterment of all in society mm-hmm. everyone it was it was it was kind of that ideology the part that I they think left was out driving. was asking everyone or reality <laughs> or assuming right I, I think that's where it really comes down to is yeah. that assumption that sometimes comes with people who have this vision yes. they just assume you know everyone's going to see it and want to get on board and right. and be part of that and you know, Henry and Georgiana, you know, again, it, just to be really careful, especially when you're talking and looking back through history mm-hmm. of you have to kind of base uh, your assessment and conclusion. You know, we really try to seek out their words. You mm-hmm. know, we're limited in not having a lot of actual direct words from Georgiana. A yes. lot of what we know about her is anecdotal. I hope those um, things are unearthed. Yeah, I, I do, too. I, we, we always want to throw the call out of anyone who has anything that you might possibly think yes. <laughs> was connected um even if it's not even a donation even if we were given access to just see it and yes. you know either make a copy of it or just kind of have that access and she seemed like a woman of such uh forward thinking right and i and just have to i would have loved to have heard one of their conversations <laughs> over the breakfast table about things that she was doing and that he was supporting but she was very progressive. Very much so. And they were so active. I think that's one of the most things when, you know, and I just did a glimpse, I kind of actually just kind of took a look at, say, the stretch of societal events and stuff in Portland, Mm -hmm. Oregon, kind of reported through the Oregonian, uh, and just kind of took a look at like, how they were reported and some of their activities of what they were doing, Mm -hmm. both so much active in Portland society and causes and fundraising for things. Mm -hmm. Um, All of these, you you know, we're just very much a part of their life. It's it's one of those where they built this house and I kind of made a joke when I was going through some of this research. I'm like, were they even here? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, how, how much time do they even actually spend in right. the home? It was almost like they a were fun, so like out. a dollhouse for him to <laughs> yeah. say, well, how does, elect- how does electricity work in Pretty this much. setting? And how can we do this and that? Because even when I visited the house, I see all these very state-of-the-art uh, items in the house itself. Right. Must have been so much fun to to watch even people try to put it in a house. Yes. And and just that whole, you know, that whole time period too. It's just he was also, you know, I think both of them, you know, she was into gardening. They also had the love of the outdoors. And mm. I think that's where that historic site really marries the two. And I had heard a story and and I'm not sure if it's you know, accurate that Georgiana was one of the people behind the idea of saving all the roses in a rose garden because of World War One in order to save them for potential 
from the war, all these various types of roses. We, you know, she was active in the Rose Society. I mm-hmm. think we can we can confidently state that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we are still trying to track down. Uh, a lot of people will make a statement that she was one of the founders of the Rose Festival. Mm-hmm. And they were very active in that whole group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's one of those where... You know, we we want to be like, yes, I would love to say, yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. Um, But we need to make sure, again, as responsible, you know, museum historians, curators, Mm -hmm. that we actually can back up the truth of what we're saying. So if you know anything about that, please go to the Paddock Mansion and report in. Or thank you for giving me something to put on the list of Mm. what we need to kind of really research and nail down. You know, it's something that we really want people. It's that pesky thing of, you know, trying to get as accurate as possible and you know, with history, that is one of the fascinating things. It's not static. Mm -hmm. It is constantly changing with new information or new ways of looking back or new ways of kind of interpreting. Mm -hmm. And when you do approach these topics and materials, especially in today's charge society of like really... You know, we, we you want to t- you don't want to take something out of context, right. and you really want to try to understand the context of in which these people lived, mm-hmm. how they operated, and really try to the, the the goal and the job of any type of a historical approach is to forget that you're looking from 21st century backward and try to actually put yourself in 1850s forward mm. and approach that time period with what was available to them in Mm. their society, the books that were printed, Mm. you know, what was going on out there, what was feeding their literature, what was really driving their perspectives and try to get the static of what you know in the aftermath or some of the problematics that, you know, have come out with societal change, which Mm. is, I mean, that's going to be part of history through ever. And it's good or bad. And even though some of the parts of history, you know, are challenging and they, you know, I, I still, you know, come upon instances in history where I'm just like, wow, how could this happen? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you have that. And and I think it's just, it's good to be challenged. And yeah. I think it's really good to kind of engage that material and um, and understand it because it's important, even if you don't agree with it. Right. And, and so, that's the point. Yeah. It's so fascinating because I think to myself, as you had said earlier, that they had employed a Chinese cook, which might have been looked mm-hmm. down upon in society at that time. And, and I think to myself, Georgiana, a woman of such thought and and compassion to um, be in a society where so many people, and I wondered about the employment of the Oregonian, if there were people of color working in, um, you know, in the machine aspects of the business, to not, um, for people of those days, not to know what was the wind beneath their wings and to continue to abuse the privilege of, of human labor. And then as a contemporary person, I think to myself, well, what are you wearing today? And where was it made? Yeah. And you are doing really the same thing, even though we're much farther, re- I'm farther removed from that. So it just continues to, to creep in about how we can do things in a way that's humane. Yes. You know, and, and the thing with the approach and, and what we know and what, I mean, it would be love. I, that's another thing too. anyone out there. If you have a roster <laughs> of, you know, people or any type of like documentation of who are the people, this is the type of stuff where we would love that data. We oh, would love that material. So that kind of information's not really there. Not that we have in our personal archives. Wow. And this is the part too, where, you know, for the mansion as a museum and its evolution, we are now actually just coming 
into a time period where it, it you know, you, you started with an empty house mm-hmm. and, and we are very unique as a historic house museum because mm-hmm. most historic house museums had the original materials in them. Yes. And so when the city took this over, restored the mansion, you know, the mansion was the one and only pretty much major artifact. And then now what? I Who think that was kind of... Who decided to do that in the first place? Um, it was actually... Uh, it was in danger of being demolished and oh, torn down. Um, Peter Gattenbein, who was actually born in the mansion, he was mm-hmm. a grandson mm-hmm. of Henry and Georgiana. He lived in the mansion up until 1958, mm. and the interest was to try to sell it. But dilapidation, you know, years into it was just not a style. You know, you're 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 in mid-century modern at this mm. point. It mm-hmm. just wasn't a, a style of house that people were interested in. Mm-hmm. And the only people who were interested in and kind of wanting to buy it was a you know developers who wanted to tear it down they Mm. wanted the view they wanted the you know they wanted the acreage it was Mm. still 46 acres Mm -hmm. as as an estate and so the citizens of Portland uh, especially after it was severely damaged in the Columbus Day storm Mm. uh, it was and it was empty at that point so you had water intrusion you had you know just a lot of dilapidation in the mansion itself and Mm -hmm. so the the primary concern was to save the house Mm. and restore it Mm -hmm. Um, but then you hit the now what when you now have to try to think about what is this going to be as a museum mm-hmm. and uh it, you know it spends from 1965 up until now mm. as we go through this evolution and we start to get materials back and mm. we start to expand the interpretive that was done about 10 years ago when mm. we start to really take a look of what is the story we're trying to tell with this house are we just trying to showcase decorative arts furniture you know what is the story and we are just in a beginning layering stage of like we're going to start talking about the history of Portland and That's we're really, really going to start exciting. diving into this mm-hmm. based on the materials that we have, you know, starting to do some more research projects, taking advantage of the archive at the Oregon Historical Society. Wonderful. And really start to tie this in. You know, they have an Oregon history project and just working in lines with that. And I think when we, when we do focus on that, we're going to get the discovery of, you know, answering some of these questions, Mm -hmm. you know, accurately and, and an informed answer versus kind of a speculation, which I think we sometimes find ourselves. Oh, and it's exciting too, because when I think about really addressing the true history of the house, including probably some of the people who built it, yeah, who who might have some pretty fascinating stories of where they came from. And, and the house has so much more than the fact that Henry and Georgiana built it and lived there. It actually, within its walls, you know, there are stories around it, behind it, under it, that are the story of Portland. Right. How things happened in Portland at that time. Right. And And, and that's really cool. I hope people will come out of the woodwork Ha <laughs> <Literally. Yeah. laughs> uh, ha! To, uh, to to talk about if they had ancestors who worked in any way, shape, or form on the building. Oh, definitely. We would love to hear anybody who might even, like, sometimes people think a box of letters in an attic that they, they're not sure what to do with. Mm-hmm. I mean, museums, historians, anyone, we, we want that. Apparently, we want to Jennifer has it. a lot of time on her hands. <laughs> <laughs> Which I wish I did. It's one of those things, if I could figure out how to go without sleep, life would be golden. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I would have the time. Yes. Uh, I have a couple. Well, for, first of all, if you're listening and you are interested in this conversation, you can visit the Pittock Mansion and you can go to pittockmansion.org and visit the mansion and you can look at all these wonderful stories that are emerging and see how this museum is coming to life, you know, right 
right here in Portland. Right. Yeah. And, and two, it's, um, you know, we're, we're just getting started. Mm -hmm. I think that's the part for us, um, as a, the growth of an organization, we took over museum operations from the city of Portland. It was being operated under Portland Parks and Rec, uh, about 10 years ago. And so is that right? Yes. 2008. (laughs) Um, wow check my math Um, (laughs) uh, so it's one of those where you know we are now also kind of taking it and doing this layering like the work that was done by the donors and the people who were very dedicated and saved the mansion you know it's like they did kind of phase one Mm -hmm. you know phase two was the nonprofit society taking over the museum operation and really concentrating on visitor experience really Mm -hmm. concentrating on what story are we telling you Mm -hmm. know do we want to start expanding this and and kind of engaging the history of Portland just because Henry and Georgiana were so much a part of it. They were yeah. so much a part of its daily activities. A real his- holistic look at it. Right. Yeah. And, and everything, you know, you don't shy away. You don't shy away with, you know... Um, Chinese immigrants coming into this area and mm-hmm. how they were treated. You don't shy away from, you know, what everything that we could come uh, uncover. I mm-hmm. think it's just the part of we are just beginning to start the work of digging and researching and mm-hmm. uncovering. How long can someone expect to stay to really get a feel for the, what you have to offer right now? We recommend uh, at least, you know, 30, 45 minutes just for the mansion alone. Uh-huh. Um, so then we also have the Gate Lodge, which uh-huh. is its own separative interpretive. And that one is really great because we had a uh, the daughter, Marjorie Skeen, who grew up and lived there, oh. was available to inform the process oh. and guide the process when it was restored as a historic house. Oh, that's exciting. Right. Yeah. That yeah. that the, the gate lodge is actually, you know, it's kind of like that secondary um, house and it doesn't have, you know, it's a craftsman home. I think mm. people can like, they're like, wow, we could buy this downtown or mm. we could save an old home. It's a house that I think people can relate to a little bit more than right. the unique structure of the mansion because the mansion itself is extremely unique in its shape, its design, Mm -hmm. everything about it, where the craftsman style of... um the uh, gate lodge is something that's a little bit, I think, a more accessible. And, and they were built at the same time? They were. Mm-hmm. And the Skeen family, um, James Skeen was the groundskeeper. Oh. And so uh, they had a groundskeeper. And then when, when Georgiana uh, and them moved out, uh, they had a car and driver. They're oh. the age of the auto. They had oh. a 1912 Pierce Arrow, oh. <laughs> which, yeah, if anyone could locate that original car, we would also love to get it back. Bring it. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I correct that. Not right now. We don't have a place to store it. But it's something where, you know, it's we would we we want to really try to engage these materials and get mm. people to take a look at like mm. this was an exciting time period like mm. everyone when they come up they're like did they have horses and i'm like uh no this mm. was the age of the automobile and and henry was very much about technology and nature he was one of the founding um, members of the mazama's hiking group he's he climbed mount hood oh. uh you know his daughter kate climbed with him oh. you know they carved out some of the trails that are you know now our existing forest park uh, it's pretty interesting yeah sure yeah. Is. so he's outdoor active all of it and yeah. so you have that he loved nature <laughs> and at the same time he was all about getting portland to be recognized as this metropolis of the pacific Northwest. again that crazy contradiction of the right. love of the earth and the majesty and spiritual nature of where we live and then this desire crazy place where people want to conquer it yeah it's interesting. Or in their mindset, 
uh, get it to a next progressive level. Right. You know, that's the part where it's one of those things where when you start to study that ideology, it was about improvement that it was improvement, not no much a domination. It Uh was like, we're going to improve this. See. And so what makes me kind of giggle at that notion is let's see how we can improve on nature. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, I mean, I get it. Carve out trails so people can walk through it. Right. Right. And so I get it's so it's such an interesting fine line. We're still dancing around with the same ideas now. Yes, and that's the part where uh, it's 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 so important to really really engage this time period, any time period really. Mm -hmm. Um, But especially when you talk about post Civil War, the Gilded Age, and then the transition to the Progressive Era, there is so much. It's it's actually historians do look at that time period and label it as uh, just a very unique time of rapid change. Mm. And so I still think that's why people kind of still struggle with the, you know, you have this fast movement, this growth, all this technology. I mean, we still have the the technology, is technology good for us? You know, that's still lingering. Um, It it existed back then as well. Right. And the rapidity with which it happened, I think, disabled us as a people from seeing what was beneath it. That right. was terrible. Right. And this is still something that haunts us. Or presents an opportunity. <laughs> right. To change. You know, right. To be and acknowledging. To understand. Right. And you say, know, well, really that understand. happened. We don't want to do that again. Well, we're still doing it. Well, how do we change it? Right. You know, it's it's pretty fascinating. Yep. I, like, I like how you think about things. Yeah. You know, looking at facts. I mean, what we see as factual. Of course, facts are always changing. You're, you're right. learning more, you're deepening. And and it's it's also the approach and the interpretation of those facts. I mean, mm-hmm. that's where you're pulling your story. Mm-hmm. You know, like I kind of challenge, you know, people of like, we don't really want to stay for sure that we know that because mm-hmm. we don't have the documentation. Right. It's not a fact or we can't, it's not a solid piece of information. But even we have to take that information and put it in context to other things around it. Mm-hmm. And this is a part too, especially for a historic house museum uh, because we're not a a museum that is just a building that has stuff in it that people can come in and engage the building itself Mm -hmm. is also an artifact right state of the art and we are telling stories through objects as well Mm, you know and in certain things like when we have you know henry's uh sword from his masonic temple we have Mm -hmm. a medal like you start to be like wow these objects were very much a part of this Freemasonry that people really don't have a good handle on. Uh-huh. Um, most that I, most of the people I talk to, and they, what they get is the secret society, the weird, you know, the uh-huh. and lack of understanding of like how that really was an intricate part of you know American industrialization and societies. Right. And what where I go with that also is I get real Mister Rogers on it. <laughs> Who made that thing? Right. Where oh. did it come from? Thanks for opening up that door. You know, that's the other thing. I too. just love that because all those objects, he thought they were important. Well, cool. He got them from someone who made them either in the United States or in Europe right. or in another continent. Who knows? Yeah. You're, you're introducing the aesthetic movement was during this time period mm-hmm. where you have, uh, you have basically an attraction of, you know, Egyptian and Asian mm-hmm. and all of these elements mm-hmm. were those 
levels of craftsmen. This is also the era of the world's fairs where design, uh, design of metalwork, mm-hmm. you know, Pyrex, the glassware, that was... That and was, transportation was blowing right. up so much that people could get things that they had never seen. Right. And that is, blows my mind because I remember I was visiting the Biltmore Estate. Oh, yeah. Biltmore's beautiful. And um, the idea of people imagining what an elephant looked like before anyone in the United States had seen one. Right. And it's just, it's mind-boggling that's not long more than 100 years ago that human people, people in the United States hadn't seen so much of these things that suddenly they were trying to amass. Right. And one of the objects we have, uh, it's actually an interactive, is an old-fashioned, it's a replica of an Orson, or Oliver, sorry, Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. What, where is that coming from? Ooh, um, some other yeah. rosebud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oliver Wendell Holmes mm-hmm. um, actually designed a stereoscope because... Um, the ones that had come out originally had given him a headache. So he was like, you know what? I'm going to design my own. And so this is the style that we have. Yeah. (laughs) But the, um, the stereoscopes was also something that this is how people got their history of another world. Mm -hmm. And something that is very fascinating about that photo archive Mm -hmm. of stereoscopes Mm -hmm. and having the double image and the 3d and the color and Mm -hmm. trying to make that come to life Mm -hmm. uh, is fascinating in and of itself. We had a new book that just came out that we have in our museum store that's called looking backward. Mm -hmm. And it's actually pulling from a title of a novel that imagined the world in, uh, in our period of 2008 writing in like 1898 oh my goodness um so it's it's it, looking backward by bellamy um uh. it's a fascinating story uh. and kind of talks about this utopian industrial progressive mindset so uh-huh. they're connected in that way but we have this uh, book that's talking about the collection of stereograph images mm. and some of them are very challenging mm. they're very challenging mm. they're depicting um the Japanese-Russian war. Mm. They're depicting, um, you know, just war-torn areas. They're predicting, uh, they they depict actually racism mm. uh, in our South. It's, it's one of those where they're challenging. And when you sit there and understand that these were going into classrooms and this is how, you know, kids were being exposed to this material and mm. what those captions were and how that education process is, you start to then really layer back of like, how do these mindsets, how do these perspectives, you know, get implanted in society? Mm-hmm. And when you start to take a look at the objects that people engaged all of the stuff that was coming out, you know, we don't have the challenging images. We have like, here's, you know, a palace, um, you know, in our 3D scopes. Mm. But there is a collection of these that are currently, um, I, I'm blanking on the name of the museum. It's in California that mm. actually has the archive of all of these mm. stereoscope images. Wow. And it's, I think they said it's like a ton, a ton worth of photographic material oh my gosh. that uh, historians and archivists and, you know, people who study photography, they're just starting to engage this material. Oh my gosh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and so the book we carry, you know, we do caution. It's, 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 it does have some challenging material, but it's being presented in a way of like, this is how people were sometimes getting their history or getting their view of what was happening in the world around mm-hmm. them. You know, because guess what? No television. Right. <laughs> guess what? No satellites. <laughs> well, we could obviously talk for right. much, much longer. <laughs> and I just encourage everyone to go visit the Pidock Mansion and, and engage with it on the and and engage with it ask questions of yourself maybe submit questions help you know make this a museum of the people really right it's exciting what yeah. you're doing
Yeah. And two, you know, like I said, we're just getting started. Um, we're in a strategic plan that's kind of putting some foundations in place where we're really looking to kind of expand what we're offering in education mm-hmm. and expand what we're offering in programming that really does kind of, you know, sometimes it's fun. Like tonight we have an event called They Ate What? <laughs> um, you know, and really looked at the recipes into the food that was being made. Oh, you know, fun. Yeah, we have an exhibit right now called Dining in the Gilded Age of oh. all of these elaborate gadgets that were being created that we still use today. Oh. Like they're still being produced. What fun. Sometimes from the same companies, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that part, it's just, you know, this is a part where you can, it can go either way. Right. You know, you can delve into more serious aspects of history mm-hmm. and then you can admire a Tiffany vase. You know, right. it's one of those where in the craftsmanship of that, that's the other part with the decorative arts. You know, the, the house itself is a work of art mm-hmm. and what it is and the local craftsmen who were involved in that. Mm-hmm. And then to some of the objects of that area, this was just such an explosion of so many things yeah. and design and the decorative arts was one of them. Yeah, human beings just exploding with ideas and being able to execute them. Right, and unnamed artists that just do Mm. magnificent work. Yes. You know, East Lake furniture styles that we have. We Mm. are fortunate to actually have the history of um, the Wennerbergs who, uh, he was a local carpenter and Mm. craftsman and Mm -hmm. furniture maker. Mm -hmm. And we have... Uh, material we have furniture material from him oh wonderful and we also have a secretary that he bought that actually was a really good example of just high quality craftsman work in in east lake style furniture and and just engaging those type of things of like really understanding the appreciation of what it took to make some of these things and just the heart and soul by hand you know right even in in mat even in the age of um you know machines and Mm -hmm. industrial and and kind of you know, Ford and the industrial line and cranking out a bunch of material, Mm -hmm. you also still had the decorative arts who were in high design. I Mm -hmm. mean, this is the era of Tiffany coming into, you know, being as Mm -hmm. a jeweler and vase and lamps. And, and it is about quality craftsmanship, which, you know, in today's disposable culture where, you know, you buy something and it's not really designed to last a hundred years and go on. In fact, it's not at all. Right. You're going to buy another one in 10 years and that's the norm. Hmm. What's wrong here? Right. Yeah. So here's a crazy question for you. Just just a fun question for Jennifer the human. Okay. Not the historian. The human historian. Well, I don't know if you can separate the two, really. (laughs) What's your perfect road trip? Hmm. My perfect road trip. Right now, because it's recent... Uh, in my brain. Uh, one, I, oh, it's going to tie to history. So sorry. How Darn about, it. You can't t- separate you. No, it's all, it's all good. Um, uh, I would like to do a road trip into um, kind of New England area mm. of uh, the Northeast America for two reasons. One, I'm probably one of the few people on the planet who has actually read all of the five uh, leather sta- uh, leather stocking tales from James Fenimore Cooper. Uh-huh. It's like Deerslayer Lass and the Mohicans, the whole nine yards. Uh-huh. Um, I had a laugh a couple of years ago. The Atlantic Monthly deemed him a very important American writer, but also deemed him unreadable. Oh, <laughs> apparently of his not. Description. <laughs> but I would love to get into that area um, where uh-huh. he lived and wrote in that whole time period. And then to Rhode Island, Massachusetts, um, I have a colonial uh, ancestry. So it's it's trying to kind of do that I would I would love to I want to you know America is a very young nation Mm -hmm. and 
you know, and and I actually study both. Um, And when I was in college, it was both, um, you know, American European history plus Native American, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in any of the religious studies courses and stuff that I did. Mm -hmm. Very much a part of that. And we really kind of trying to kind of get into that area of this, you know, where it kind of impacted and Mm. started this Mm. whole process that gets us to our era that we are now. Mm. What fun. (laughs) I know that was fun. You're like, you are such a nerd. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm hundred percent with you. I will add, I also have a dream road trip to Chaco Canyon in New Mexico Uh uh, because of the way they align their buildings with all like uh, solar, um, the sun cycles and the moon cycles. Chaco Canyon is also one of the spots that I just cannot wait to get into a car. I I need to get to the point where I, if I could get a year off, Uh I would probably spend it in a vehicle um, half part of that year. And then the other half, I would be in Europe. (laughs) All your road trips sound perfect to me. Right. Yep. So here's a question. Years ago, they had this special on PBS, mm-hmm. and remember, they did the Colonial House, and they did all these different eras during which they put regular people who wanted to be a part of an experiment to live right. in the way that the people lived in that day. Yeah, living history. I think you should do that at Pittock Mansion. Here's the thing with living history, and now, just for the record, I'm not the curator. I want to be be Georgiana. (laughs) Yeah, Georgiana. The thing is, is um, Patty Larkin actually has background in living history. Her her statement whenever living history uh, comes out or gets asked of her Mm -hmm. is, if you're going to do it, you have to do it right. Right. And it is about, you know, you know, no scrunchy hair ties underneath that bonnet. Mm -mm. You know, you are wearing the underwear you're bathing they, you're, yep. and you're washing your hair once a month <laughs> right you know, well. is, this is 1911 people <laughs> um, I love that stuff. right yes you have to do it right you you can't you know we we had a um a recognition of the fact that we had a an example of a knitted piece and it's like it's acrylic yarn you know mm. and it's like okay no we have to go back and get that into the materials and stuff that they would have been using back mm. in that time period so yeah living history is is a great way to engage mm. um, um, and to even as somebody who uh, wants to get into that as a volunteer or become a living history, you know, I guess, demonstrator, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. it's not that um, our curator is opposed to it. It's more of if you do it, the you do it right. So if you you're know? into it, you could maybe, you know, call up. The Pitock Mansion. We you know, they it's, even it's, had it, that is nowhere near part of our strategic plan right now. <laughs> Darn it! Because they even had one during the Regency period that was kind of a dating game. Oh, funny! I think I think it it was shot in the United States, but I'm not sure. I have to look back because I thought, wow, that's kind of perfect and fun. Because you know, then you have like a little dating show for people who are history buffs and like cool people who like to learn stuff. <laughs> that's so funny. much better than swipe right and swipe left. Right, <laughs> and that's the part too where I think you know we we are also kind of exploring like do we want to do the explosion of technology with the apps and all of the screens and yeah. stuff like that isn't and it kind engagement. of engagement i mean henry would love it yes actually that's so funny we are going to be upgrading to a new ticketing system and when our when our systems or our internet or something was was one of the jokes i used to say if i was you know interacting with the public i'm like well henry pittock was was up on the technology of his day we <laughs> we however not so much <laughs> You know, and and the challenges of the site, you know, you also are dealing with two foot thick masonry brick walls that are then, you know, covered in stucco. And, you know, so it's like one of those where the just the challenges of the site. 
Hmm. But when we think about using technology to do that right now, we are focusing more of like, we need to get people to kind of, I think, understand and engage some of the historical objects that we have. And mm-hmm. so what we we have started implementing, we call them artifact carts mm. and hands-on history carts. Mm. And so you get to actually touch. I think that's the one, mm. the one very also unique thing, which doesn't make sense. Nice grammar. <laughs> the one very unique thing about our mansion too, is we do let people get very close to our exhibit mm-hmm. and we do let people, most historic house museums, a lot of times you can only view from a hall mm-hmm. or they don't let you go into a room. Right. And we do, we let mm-hmm. you go into the room. You you know, we, we separate a rope, you know, mm-hmm. to some mm-hmm. of the objects. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we want people to be encouraged to feel like that you, you can be in this interior and mm-hmm. feel what it was like to be there Mm. and some of the objects and stuff of you know it's rare that you can go into a museum and actually handle something of a time period and for us we just we we have a unique situation where we have materials and stuff Mm. where it's like go ahead and touch it Mm. we also have materials that are no you're not going to touch that (laughs) don't touch that (laughs) right well like i said we could talk forever but we're limited sadly but i'm really looking forward to come back coming back and you've really helped me to think about how you know a building like that really reveals things and that it's a a beautiful building that has a, a lot of stories that have yet to be told right yeah. And yeah, and more to come. Yeah. You know, it, it, like I said, the we actually, we actually offer interpretive both inside and out. Mm. And we also, we offer like glimpses into things. And, you know, I, I kind of, when I came on board um, as associate director a couple of years ago, it was like, wow, we, we, we do have a lot of potential here. Mm. And us as an organization and a museum, what we're just mapping out of, you know, how do we get to this next level strategically? Mm. Um, how we, do we do it responsibly? Yeah. And we are in a position where we're, we're, we're just on that brink of like, we want to expand what we're offering. We mm. want people to be able to come up and really feel and engage and and ask questions and let's talk about some challenging things that you know the Portland history represents. And what a great offer, right? Yeah. And so and, take that. Take Jennifer up on it. Yeah, show up, have a conversation <laughs> at the Pittock Mansion, and check out the website pittockmansion.org. And Jennifer, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I really enjoyed it. You're welcome. Thank mm. you so much for mm-hmm. having me. Pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. Mm. Thanks for listening to Adventures in Artslandia. Download the Artslandia app on iTunes, where you're going to find a comprehensive arts calendar that's the best in the West. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Artslandia.